Welcome to a recording from a La Trobe Asia public event. The future of the Indo-Pacific region is being buffeted by an array of complex forces, including the return of great power rivalry, rising liberalism and growing nationalism. In this event, you'll be hearing from the Honourable Julie Bishop, Australia's Minister for Foreign Affairs and Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party. She's joined on stage by Tony Walker, a La Trobe University Vice-Chancellor's Fellow, Professor Nick Bisley, the Head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University, and Dr Rebecca Strading, a lecturer in politics at La Trobe University. The event was in partnership with La Trobe University's Ideas and Society program. It was held at the Grand Hyatt Melbourne on 11th of April 2018. It begins with an address from Julie Bishop. Good morning and thank you for the introduction. Chancellor, Excellencies, members of the Diplomatic Corps, panellists, friends of La Trobe University. It's always inspiring to be at one of Australia's leading centres for higher education and I'm delighted to be at this La Trobe University event today. I thank Auntie Joy for her welcome to country. One thing that has often crossed my mind is how future generations will look back and judge our generation and our time in the same way that we study past events and judge what will be the historical events of our time. Since World War II, we've been fortunate to live through a time of relative peace, one that has not been disrupted by a global conflict. This prolonged period of relative peace has supported the greatest expansion in prosperity in human history, lifting hundreds of millions out of poverty. It's also been a time of rapid change, more recently driven by the unprecedented scale and pace of the technology revolution, which has disrupted the way we live and work and connect. As every generation faces challenges and opportunities, future generations will strive to find insights into the decision-making processes of the time. For example, the Industrial Revolution ushered in an era of enormous change as largely agrarian societies and economies were challenged by mechanisation and mass production. It also led to greater urbanisation as employment grew in cities where many of the factories were located, while demand also grew for energy, mostly provided by coal and oil. These shifts created well-documented tensions between capital and labour and gave rise to unions, for example. Policymakers responded to concerns about labour exploitation, resulting in governments legislating employment standards, including for remuneration and safety, among many others. There's also been much written over the years about the events, suspicion and misjudgments that led to the outbreak of conflict that spiralled out of control into World War I. History's not kind to those who started that war and less kind to the conduct of it. Policymakers have also been judged harshly for the decisions that gave rise to the Great Depression, including responses that worsened its effects. Similarly, 
political leaders who embrace the so-called appeasement policy towards Nazi government of Adolf Hitler have been criticised for failing to identify the threat he posed to the world. After World War II, the United States political leadership was praised for its visionary decision to implement the Marshall Plan for the reconstruction of Europe and reinvigoration of the economy, including former combatants, Germany and Italy. Such were the horrors of the Second World War. In its aftermath, there was a collective will to put in place structures that would prevent a recurrence of global conflict. The United Nations came into existence where the powerful Security Council as the custodian of international peace and stability. There are valid criticisms about the veto power held by the permanent five members. However, the Security Council has played an important role, not least through the coordination of sanctions against nations failing to uphold norms and standards of behaviour. The United Nations is a key part of what we call the international rules-based order that has evolved in the decades since 1945. Other key institutions and organisations include the World Trade Organisation, the International Criminal Court, the European Union, APEC, the East Asia Summit, ASEAN, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons and many, many more. The rules-based order is that network of alliances, treaties, conventions and institutions underpinned by international law that has been developed to protect the interests of all nations and to create a level playing field so that all boats have the same opportunity to be lifted on the rising economic tide. The rules-based order was designed primarily to prevent larger nations using economic or military power to impose unfair or coercive agreements on less powerful nations, an environment where might is right and where the rules are set by powerful nations to their advantage is obviously more susceptible to conflict. I believe the test for our generation will be whether, given the opportunity, we defended and strengthened that rules-based order that has brought unparalleled prosperity and opportunity to humanity. Australia's been a clear beneficiary of the rules-based order. Economically, Australia is entering our 27th consecutive year of uninterrupted economic growth. That is a world record for any economy in modern history. And Australia is exquisitely positioned in the Indi Indian Ocean Asia Pacific region for the Indo-Pacific is the most economically dynamic in the world. The most rapid expansion of the middle class in economic history is occurring at our doorstep. In the mid-1980s, 150 years after the Industrial Revolution, the world reached a middle class of some one billion people. Current estimates are that the global middle class has reached about three billion people, with half in our region. By 2030, when the global middle class is estimated to reach 5 billion people, it is forecast that two-thirds will be living in Asia. The opportunities available to Australia will be immense as this growing consumer class demands 
high quality and clean food, for example, and high standards of services for themselves and their family, including health care, aged care and education. The Australian Government's 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper that I launched last November with Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and our Trade Minister Stephen Chobo is a fundamentally optimistic document. It commits Australia to championing the benefits of economic openness and further trade liberalisation and warns against the pitfalls of protectionism. In this context, we are concerned about recent moves in the United States to unilaterally raise tariffs and quotas against some of its trading partners. This is not consistent with the United States as a champion for the past 70 years of more open markets. The more open trading environment has, along with prolonged peace, underwritten prosperity in the United States and around the world. It is not in Australia's interests, nor that of the world economy, for any escalation of current tensions into a full-scale trade war. Our concerns have been raised with the Trump administration at the highest levels, where we have urged the United States to remain within the framework of the World Trade Organization and to use its dispute settlement processes. It's also in that context that I welcome the reports overnight of President Xi Jinping's commitment to trade and investment openness with greater access to significant sectors of the Chinese economy and a lowering of tariffs on vehicle imports. Our white paper is also a clear-eyed and frank assessment of the regional challenges we face over the next decade and beyond. To a large degree, the prospects for continued peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific depend on our capacity to manage the consequences of rising prosperity and wealth, which is overwhelmingly a blessing. Rising national wealth enables nations to invest more in their military. Defence outlays in the region expanded over 5.5% in the last financial year, which easily outpaced the 1% overall increase in global military spending. According to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, over half of the top 10 countries with the largest military budgets are in the Indo-Pacific, the United States, China, Russia, India, Japan and South Korea. All, with the exception of Russia, are among the top 10 trading partners for Australia. Six of the world's nine nuclear weapon states are in our region. Even though the United States is likely to remain the world's only superpower in the decade ahead, we have never been in an era where China, Japan and India have also been powerful at the same time. By 2020, the combined military budgets of regional countries will likely match or exceed military spending by the United States for the first time in at least a century. Many of the major or rising powers in the Indo-Pacific have maritime or land-based disputes with one another. Some go back decades, even centuries. These disputes reinforce the need for the rules-based order to facilitate negotiated and peaceful resolutions. A case in point is Australia and Timor-Leste's successful conciliation pursuant to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, 
to settle our maritime boundary claims in the Timor Sea. And I was pleased to be able to sign the treaty with Timor-Leste in the United Nations in the presence of the UN Secretary-General last month. More generally, there is greater uncertainty than was the case when optimism was at a peak in the 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Ideologically, illiberalism is on the rise, both in our immediate region and throughout the world. Now, at this point, I must make mention for those who read The Australian and saw it this morning, I point out my reference is to, quote, our immediate region, end quote, which refers to the Indo-Pacific, not to any one country. I'm sure the Australian will correct their error. They haven't yet. <laughs> it's rather disturbing when journalists make assumptions that are wrong without checking with the source, wouldn't you say, Mr Walker? According to Freedom House, democracy has suffered global decline since 2006, with the lowering of democratic standards occurring in 113 countries compared to an improvement of such standards in only 62 countries. This year marks the 12th consecutive year of decline in measures of global freedom, such as free and fair elections, freedom of the press and political and civil liberties. The attack against or winding back of liberal institutions is resulting from the rise of authoritarian governments in some instances, from the spread of extreme religious ideologies in other instances, in some other cases it's a product of state and institutional fragility. It is in Australia's interest to peacefully promote the spread of liberal principles and institutions such as the rule of law, transparency and appropriate degrees of separation between the strategic and political objectives of states on the one hand with commercial activity of businesses on the other. So our white paper has as its underpinning a defence and strengthening of the international rules-based order. These are issues I've discussed with world leaders and counterparts for example, recently with Iraqi's Prime Minister Abadi, I spoke about the need in the aftermath of the ISIS defeat to ensure that all citizens, including minorities, are equal before the law. All citizens of any state must feel confident that their interests are protected. Otherwise, there's a real risk they'll turn to, in the case of the Middle East, militias and insurgents as an alternative. Dr Henry Kissinger wrote in his 2014 book, World Order, that we are at a moment in history when chaos threatens side by side with unprecedented interdependence. Interdependence and economic integration would normally be expected to reduce the risk of chaos and conflict. However, it also does not of itself guarantee stability. Our White Paper commits Australia to an ambitious and proactive strategic and diplomatic agenda. It contains a specific policy focus on the Pacific, our neighbourhood, where we have committed to a significant step up in our engagement in the Pacific. Overall, it articulates our values as a liberal democracy, our interests which serve as the framework for proactively promoting our interests and responding to unforeseen events. 
I believe it is a timely and well-researched policy platform. Our White Paper team participated in 24 roundtable discussions across Australia, met with more than 60 prominent Australians and subject matter experts, and received over 9,200 written submissions, including, and I thank you, from La Trobe University. We consulted widely. To be clear, the rules-based order is not facing the same direct assault as during periods of the Cold War, even if the policies of pariah countries such as North Korea are in direct defiance of it. However, we must ensure that nations don't fall for the temptation of ignoring international law and rules for narrow advantage and short-term gain. The rules-based order will quickly fray if it is perceived that advantage can be gained by flouting it or working around it. We are also particularly focused on the Indo-Pacific as we seek to defend and strengthen the existing order to enable the continued economic rise of individual countries and the region. The economic games in our region and its emergence as a vast and integrated economic zone producing the lion's share of goods and services to the world and each other would have been impossible without the rules we have in place. There are other important aspects to note about the international rules-based order. It's an open and dynamic system which doesn't entrench past gains, protect existing privileges or constrain any country's rise within the order. Since the end of the Cold War, China has become the greatest beneficiary of the existing order when it opened itself up to the world and especially after it joined the WTO in December 2001. According to the IMF, Myanmar, India and Bangladesh are expected to emerge as the fastest growing economies in the region. All countries have as great an incentive and duty to play their part in supporting the rules-based order. We are today in a far more complex and diverse geostrategic and geoeconomic region. For example, Japan and South Korea are significant economic and strategic powers. India is already a great regional power with a young population. Indonesia and Vietnam are Southeast Asian rising powers. To be sure, China has emerged as a critical economic partner to every economy in the Indo-Pacific and beyond, and is the largest trading partner for many countries, including Australia. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, was formed 51 years ago, when the five nations of Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore and Thailand recognised the need to promote collective economic growth, social progress, cultural development and peace and stability. At that time, the then Foreign Minister of Australia, the Minister for External Affairs, Paul Hasluck, who in fact is a predecessor in my seat of Curtin in Western Australia, was the first world leader to welcome the establishment of ASEAN. Seven years later, in 1974, Australia became the first dialogue partner of ASEAN. We recognised that the sea lanes of Southeast Asia were vital for us, that the security challenges facing the region demanded a collective regional response, and we knew that the economic prosperity of these five important economies was of vital importance to Australia, the region, and as it turns out, globally. These reasons remain at least as pertinent today as they did then. And this is why Prime Minister Turnbull hosted the 10 ASEAN nations here in Australia last month at the first ASEAN Australia Special Summit. This special summit has marked a new era in our relationship and partnership. Australia and ASEAN committed to cooperate further with respect to our response to regional and global challenges and build on our deep legacy of economic cooperation.
ASEAN is the geographical and diplomatic heart of the Indo-Pacific. Our white paper stands as a clear articulation of our enduring values and interests and will guide our external engagement and deployment of national resources over the next decade and beyond. But of course, our greatest national resource is our people. And one of the most important aspects of our international engagement today is our new Colombo plan. My inspiration for this policy was the original Colombo plan of the 1950s and 60s that brought many thousands of young people from our region to study in Australia and gain qualifications in Australia, with significant numbers of those scholars now in senior roles in government and business throughout our region. In 2014, we commenced a pilot to send our students overseas for a new Colombo plan and 40 new Colombo Plan undergraduates were supported to study for 12 months overseas and live and work the four pilot countries, Indonesia, Japan, Hong Kong and Singapore. Another 1,000 students took up the shorter term mobility opportunities in our pilot. It was such a success and the feedback from the four locations was such that we then rolled it out across the Indo-Pacific. And today, there are 40 locations that host our new Colombo Plan undergraduates from all our universities. For example, this year, the new Colombo Plan will support 120 scholars in 20 locations. And for the first time, our scholars, those spending 12 months abroad, will undertake programs in Tonga, Micronesia and New Caledonia among the 40 host locations that welcome Australian undergraduates under the new Colombo Plan. There will be 13,000 students undertaking 2018 new Colombo Plan mobility projects. By the way, La Trobe has been particularly successful with seven of its students receiving prestigious scholarships and about 609 students receiving funding for the shorter courses in our region. By the end of this year, from a standing start in 2014, our new Colombo Plan program will have supported 30,000 young Australian undergraduates living, studying and working in our region, thus deepening Australia's relationship and engagement. At the recent ASEAN summit, each leader specifically mentioned the new Colombo plan as an example of Australia's genuine commitment to our region. And I believe that this is one of the most prudent investments that the Australian government can make in our long-term national interest. It will help build our national prosperity and our place in the region for decades to come. With our young Australians as an army of unofficial diplomats, uh, making connections, building networks, and friendships that will last a lifetime, I feel confident that the very best days for Australia within the Indo-Pacific region lie ahead of us. Overall, I believe Australia should be optimistic about our future as an open liberal democracy and an open export-oriented market economy. But we must be vigilant and continue to promote and advocate for these values and interests. And if we remain committed to this course and are clear-eyed about our priorities, I believe our future will be bright. Thank you.
We're, we're very <coughs> grateful that in an extremely busy schedule, the Minister has taken time to uh, take some questions and comments from the panel before uh, moving on. I would personally like to say, as someone who's engaged with the new Colombo plan, um, would express on behalf both of Latrobe and I think of the university sector that it's been without question an Madonna unbridled success. Are you right? I said, Madonna <laughs> clearly does this better than I do. We'll, we'll leave that right there. <laughs> <laughs> I meant this. Yeah. But, it, but it is a program that, that reflects an, uh, both um, the, the importance of the people, the people link, uh, links, uh, and I think a really strategic allocation of resources. In the best university traditions, all I'd say is please make it bigger, spend more on it, and get more of our students abroad. I agree. Um, Beck. Ah, yeah, thank you, Minister. Um, I would like to sort of begin with the concept of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, previously, we tended to talk about our region as being the Asia-Pacific, but that has been uh, expanded westward to include um, South Asia. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, in terms of um, how we conduct foreign policy and how resources are distributed, how is that concept going to be operationalised? Uh, you know, the diplomatic profile or military spending or development assistance. Uh, is this just about including India in our neighbourhood? Or uh, is it much more than that? I've been using the term for some time, ever since I became foreign minister, and in fact, when I was shadow foreign minister, because I believe it reflects the uh, strategic and economic reality. It's beyond just a geographic description, although I have to admit that coming from Western Australia, I am very conscious that we are bounded by both the great Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. It's not always evident to those on this side of the country that we have a Western coastline. And with the Indian Ocean, the Asia Pacific, that in fact sets our geographic location. We look west, north and east. But it also takes into account the growing heft of countries like India, the prospects for Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, countries with whom we will have a continuing uh, and deeper engagement. So it's a term that I note has been picked up by others. It's referenced in the United States National Security Statement. Um, it's a term that is often used within ASEAN and indeed at the last ASEAN summit, um, my friend Retno Masudi from Indonesia confirmed that she was indeed conducting an assessment of the use of the term within um, ASEAN. So I think it's here to stay. For us, it means that we will be focusing our efforts on the Indo-Pacific. Already you will have seen that our aid budget has been targeted to the Indo-Pacific and more specifically the Pacific. Uh, I have mentioned in my speech the rise of um, military um, engagement in our region, which is, again, the Indo-Pacific. And when I think of our trading partners, uh, most of them are also, with the exception, I would say, of Great Britain and Germany, are in our top ten, are in the Indo-Pacific. Can I just follow yeah, up? Oh, just on resources. Um, it doesn't mean more money is required, but it means that when we are rolling out um, more diplomatic posts, for example, we're focusing on our region. It doesn't mean to the exclusion of other parts of the globe by any means. We've opened new posts in um, Colombia, for example, in Morocco, but our first priority is to focus on the Indo-Pacific and ensure that our resources are being targeted 
to priority areas. As a sort of strategic backdrop, the Indo-Pacific concept, I wanted to dig in to um, ask you about the um, quadrilateral security dialogue. Uh, and um, for those of you who aren't familiar, this is an idea that's being sort of reinvigorated recently, uh, a series of dialogues between Australia, India, Japan um, and the United States. I'm wondering um, what role do you see for the Quad in responding both to China's growing regional influence, but also uh, picking up on what you're talking about um, in, in defending uh, the rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific region? Well, first, the quadrilateral, or the quad as it's known, has come about because there are two trilaterals currently in existence, Australia, Japan, and uh, the United States, the United States, Japan, and India, and these two trilaterals have been operating for some time. It's a group, uh, you know, loose grouping of countries that have common interests or um, want to pursue common aims. Uh, it's not a formal grouping in any sense. But this is just bringing those two trilaterals together. So you end up with Australia, Japan, the United States and India. It's like other groupings in the region. Um, and you mentioned China. China, of course, has uh, is a member of a number of groups like BRICS, for example, but it's not directed at China. It's not about constraining China. One wouldn't want to constrain China's peaceful rise. It's about connecting with countries that have common interests and we are all significant democracies in the um, Indo-Pacific. Uh, we have similar outlooks, a similar regional and world view. And uh, we talk amongst each other to see whether we can advance particular interests um, in our region. Now, to talk of the Quad as anything more formalised than that would be to <coughs> overstate it. It's only met at officials' level. The foreign ministers or the leaders of the four um, countries haven't met as a quadrilateral, although we, of course, meet in those two trilaterals that I'm talking about. But we see this quite often, where <coughs> countries come together as a group to pursue common interests and common values. Could, could I just, uh, with your indulgence, uh, Nick, just follow that uh, question from back up? But isn't this quad approach nudging towards a sort of hedging strategy towards China, Foreign Minister? Not a containment strategy, but a hedging strategy? I wouldn't put it that way either. Um, it's been around for some time. Um, it was, came up as a concept uh, when John Howard was Prime Minister, you'll recall. Um, and then the incoming Labor government uh, walked away from it uh, for their own reasons. We have, through um, discussions with the United States, Japan, India, um, thought that particularly challenged, challenges to the rules-based order needed uh, more strength, and so we're discussing those kinds of issues that we see in the region. And we're going to see India play a much larger role uh, under Prime Minister Modi, I think that India has uh, reached out far beyond its um, non-aligned movement status and is becoming a regional, indeed I expect, a global power in due course. So it would be in Australia's interest to get closer to India and if we can do that through the quadrilateral then I think that's a, a, a good thing for us. Minister, I wanted to just talk a little bit about ASEAN, um, mm. which I know is potentially risky strategy at early in the morning. Um, but this, in the special summit, as you mentioned that part of the reason was 
for Australia focusing on it was essentially to, to help buttress the rules-based order and to see ASEAN as, as a mechanism that can do this. But I wonder if you see a tension between the rules-based order embodied in institutions and the liberal values of those institutions when ASEAN began life as an authoritarian dictators club and is increasingly in the 10 members, you know, there are basically seven authoritarian dictators and three liberal democracies that are not always in the best of shape, whether how we engage with the rules-based order on the one hand and the, the, the values that the institutions represent on the other hand. How do we reconcile that tension? If you consider ASEAN's own charter, it aspires to embrace democratic values and institutions. And we are encouraging the ASEAN countries to live up to their aspirations. And they are very different. Uh, and we deal with each ASEAN <coughs> country individually and collectively as a group. And our individual relations with the specific ASEAN countries, of course, depends upon um, the nature of, of that, that country. For example, our relations with Singapore and Indonesia have probably never been stronger or deeper or broader, uh, whereas there are other countries within ASEAN that do present a challenge because they might be heading in a direction that is not consistent with their own charter. So that's why we believe that given the importance of the individual ASEAN countries and their collective importance, uh, that we should engage as much as possible and um, promote what we believe are the values that they wish to promote. Australia should not and does not lecture other countries. We don't tell other countries what to do, but we share our experience and what has worked for us. And we can point to our economic success, our social cohesion, our, and believe me, it's relatively stable, our relatively stable system of government. And... Um, talk about our experience when we are working with them as they achieve their objectives. Can, can I ask you about trade and China? And you referenced in your speech uh, President Xi Jinping's uh, uh, speech yesterday where he foreshadowed a uh, greater opening, uh, uh, trade opening uh, to the outside world, uh, and a new stage, I guess, in, in this process. Do you think the fact that he appears to have yielded on that front uh, validates the Trump hardball approach? Are there lessons in this for Australia in its own dealings with China? I was going to offer you, uh, ask you a follow-up question as well uh, about how you uh, characterise our relationship with Beijing at the moment because I, I detect a certain coolness. First, President Xi Jinping has been speaking publicly about more openness for some time at the 2017 Davos Forum in January of 2017. His speech was notable for its um, commitment to greater trade liberalisation and openness. And so I believe that this uh, speech at the Boao Forum is a continuation of that theme of China continuing to open its markets to the world. And he was more specific overnight, talking about lowering tariffs on vehicle imports, opening up sectors of the economy, including manufacturing, that have otherwise been uh, a challenge for foreign investment and foreign companies. So I think this is part of uh, China's overall approach, although I do note that um, many have concluded that it is as a result of President Trump's particularly blunt warnings on protectionism and the... 
um, need for a level playing field and fairer trade between the United States and China. And as long as the um, disputes are resolved through the World Trade Organization, which is what we are urging, then the outcome should be for the benefit of all. We avoid a trade war, the rules-based order remains intact and plays its role, and China and the US resolve their differences, so it would be a good outcome. In terms of our relationship with Beijing, there were concerns last year that our um, announced foreign interference legislation was directed at China. It was not. Uh, the foreign interference legislation is the kind of uh, legislation that all sovereign nations should consider. It's not about foreign influence because we all seek to influence other countries through our diplomacy efforts and otherwise. Uh, but when it interference is at the level of espionage, then clearly a sovereign nation must take action, which is why we have introduced this foreign interference legislation and also preventing uh, foreign donations, which many democracies um, do in any event. Uh, so I think there was a misunderstanding there, but um, we have certainly made our position clear and our engagement with China goes on. We, we connect with China at um, every level, uh, through government, through business, people to people, through the students, through tourists, and the relationship continues to um, deepen. Was there a reason why we weren't represented at the uh, Hainan Forum uh, at a senior political level or a reasonably senior political level? Well, this was a matter for uh, those invited to consider their availability. Um, I couldn't go, but um, we have our ambassador there and other high-profile representatives like Peter Costello as the chairman of the Future Fund. Okay. Uh, one of the most significant strategic and economic uh, initiatives coming out of China is the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm wondering whether you could um, sort of give us an idea of what Australia's uh, position is on the Belt and Road. Do you see this as a positive uh, contribution to the Indo-Pacific region? Uh, Australia is a member of the AIIB, the um, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which was instigated by China, but this now has a much broader membership um, of providing infrastructure funding for developments and projects around the world. Um, the One Built, One Road, the BRI initiative, is um, a China only, in that there are not other members. Not, it's not internationalised to that extent. Uh, it's early days, and we are certainly... Um, keen to see what kind of projects will be uh, supported under the BRI initiative. Uh, without doubt, there's an enormous need for further infrastructure investment in our region. I think the Asian Development Bank estimated that something like $30 trillion in infrastructure investment will be required by 2030 to continue the pace of economic growth in the region. So there's an enormous need for infrastructure spending. Uh, we have to ensure that it is productivity-enhancing infrastructure spending, and uh, so, of course, we and other nations are um, observing how BRI will achieve those objectives. Minister, I think we've got time for one last question. I was just 
asking a, a Do we have just time for one sure. last one? Sure. <laughs> Tony always likes the last one. I know, he likes the last one. The question is really about capacity for Australia. We're an advocate for a liberal international order and liberal values in a world that's increasingly illiberal. And as you said in your speech, it's not just our region, but globally this is a, this is a, a, a worldwide trend. Um, how does a country like Australia advocate for and defend um, a and, and seek to, to strengthen a liberal international order when even the stoutest defenders in the US, the UK, show doubts about the values of, of liberalism? I don't know that they doubt the values. They are concerned that mm. it is under strain, that there are some nations who are openly flouting the rules-based order. North Korea is in breach of numerous UN Security Council resolutions to stop its illegal development of ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons. Um, other countries have, from time to time, ignored the rules-based order. Russia's breach of Ukraine's sovereignty, uh, its illegal annexation of Crimea are two examples that come to mind. But it's in all our interests for us to strengthen, defend, promote, um, even fight for the rules-based order because the alternative would be catastrophic for countries to flout the international rules, to take short-term advantage by ignoring them, um, would lead to significant decline, both um, strategically and economically. So we all have a responsibility to do our part in promoting the rules-based order, that is, playing by the rules. Uh, you do it by your actions, you do it by your advocacy. Australia is taking part in um, many forums around the world, uh, we were elected to the United Nations Human Rights Council this year, um, a decision of the Turnbull government that we wanted to ensure that countries like Australia um, shared our experiences and our concerns and had our voice heard in the forums around the world. Australia has a, an extensive diplomatic network, about 110 um, diplomatic posts now. Uh, we are present in most countries and... Um, we take every opportunity to share our experience, which is promoting that rules-based order. And I have to say, our economic performance, 27 consecutive years of uninterrupted economic growth, does impress. It's raised with me often as I travel around the world. But as I point out, it doesn't happen by accident. It requires continued reform, continued flexibility, responding in a positive way, and not responding with protectionist tendencies, um, not raising tariffs, but in fact becoming more open, more engaged, more economically interdependent. Thank you. I'm could, afraid... Could I ask uh, a journalist... <laughs> <laughs> Tony's abusing to, his position. What, quickly, one, really quickly. One journalist question, and it's not, nothing to do with the Liberal Party leadership, by the way, you'll be relieved. <laughs> I can't imagine why you even thought of that topic. <laughs> You've been foreign minister for five years now. Um, I was just reflecting, actually, I was coming in on the tram that right at the beginning we took that trip to Vanuatu, actually, which has been in the news, Solomon Islands and, and Nauru. What have you learned in this five years? What, what surprised you? What sort of um, occurred to you during this five-year process? I've certainly learned that Australia's voice matters. I've certainly learned that um, when Australia takes a stand, um, others do notice. 
um, whether they agree with us or don't agree with us. I've also learned that one has to be um, consistent in our approach. I don't mean we're inflexible, but that you have to stick to your values and your principles because if you waver and there's uncertainty or surprises about how you respond, um, the consequences can spiral out of your control. So Australia is seen as a consistent voice on the world stage. Um, whether people agree or disagree, at least they know where we stand. And I've learned that that's exceedingly important. I've also learned that personal contact and personal relationships matter a great deal. And even though I'm now one of the longest serving foreign ministers or foreign secretaries, there's been a bit of a turnover of late, I nevertheless maintain personal connections. And thank goodness for text messaging. I maintain very close connections with my counterparts because you never know when those connections are going to be called upon in Australia's interests. Thank you, White. Now we really do have to end um, because the Minister has to leave, so I'd like to call uh, the Chancellor of the University, Professor Richard Larkins, to the stage to express our gratitude. On behalf of La Trobe University, I'd like to thank the Minister very much for taking time out from her extremely busy schedule to address us today. I think you'll agree that her address was characterised by precision, by clarity and by intellect. I think these qualities have underpinned her activities as Foreign Minister over the last five years and we can be very confident that Australia's interests are very well looked after internationally by her strong advocacy and by the way in which she presents her arguments. Minister, thank you very much. We all enjoyed your address and appreciate it very much. Thank, thank you. Um, as many of you will be aware, uh, Minister Bishop's address is the third part of a series of public events that we've held to commemorate the university's 50th anniversary uh, in 2017 with former Prime Minister Paul Keating, uh, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, and now Minister Bishop. Uh, in the, the remaining 30 minutes or so, we're going to talk a little bit about the big ideas and themes that have been raised um, in these three events. But as a little refresher, we've put together a sort of five or six minute video of some of the interesting comments made by uh, Paul Keating and Kevin Rudd at the previous two events as a little uh, prep. The, the days of sort of comfortable multilateralism superintended by the United States uh, along sort of Jeffersonian principles, uh, this is fading away to a world of great power entities again and great, uh, and great power politics again. And, and in that world, it's just a, a much harder world for a country like Australia to live in. We're returning to a great, a great power political world multilateralism is becoming much less important and we've always in a sense been internationalist but as Alan said the rules have been written by our friends now the rules have been written by a whole lot of people and you know the old saying you know when the going gets tough the tough get going that's what we should be doing instead of that we've got this sort of what I call the wimp policy oh please the United States oh please don't let our hand go uh, please, uh, don't leave us, please hang on. Japan, which is, of course, the mother of all developing countries, 
got in 1989 at, the, at its peak, got to 70% of US incomes, sorry, 90% of US incomes per capita. And after the long, if you like, recession in Japan, it's now down to 70. Now, it, it's not likely that one and a quarter billion Chinese are going to get to 70% of US incomes per capita. But at over 20 now, it's likely that they'll get to 50%. They could get to 50, the great bulk of them. 50% of US incomes, but four times as many of them. So half of four is two. They end up in an economy twice as large as the US. The truth is the Americans are entirely important to the peace and good order of East Asia. And having them there as a balancing power, as Britain was in the 19th century, you know, when, when the Germans, when, the, when Bonaparte was afoot with the Germans and, and conquering the rest of Europe, Britain stood off as a balancing power, as it did with Kaiser Wilhelm in the 1890s and as it did in the run-up to the First World War. You know, it had that balancing role and conciliating role. Similarly, I think the Americans should enjoy that role in Asia, and we need them to. I mean, that's, that's the point. We need them to. But what we don't need them doing is trying to maintain the game like it was at the end of the Second World War. Something, uh, something strange happened to the discussion about the U US relationship, I think, in the course of the 21st century, which wasn't there as I've been writing the history of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, of the 20th. The uh, alliance took on what Paul separately has described as sort of a sacramental uh, quality. You could see it in, in government documents suddenly started using the, the, the word alliance with a capital A. It, it, things changed from a, from a small A alliance to a large A uh, alliance. So it's, um, uh, you know, after 9-11 really, uh, it's, ta it's taken on a different um, uh, weight in the, in the Australian uh, de uh, debate and an unnecessary weight, I think. Right now, however, we face, I think, um, some fundamental challenges and changes to the order. America's unipolar moment is changing. Uh, America's unipolar moment is beginning to fade. Uh, within the next decade, China will be uh, the world's largest economy by whichever measure. Uh, it already is by purchasing power parity. It will be in the next decade by market exchange rates uh, benchmark for analysis. And when that occurs, that will be the first time since George III was on the throne that you'll have a non-English speaking, non-democratic, non-Western state as the largest economy in the world. You have what is called the Belt and Road Initiative, or One Belt, One Road, Idai Ilu. And when you look at the trillion dollar dimensions of what China plans by this um, uh, national, or pan, shall I say, pan-national, pan-regional Eurasian construct uh, of uh, building out the infrastructure necessary to underpin uh, the future economic development of this vast region, including underperforming economies across it, this is big stuff. It is huge. For those who don't think it's huge, in its conceptualization at least, it represents about 10 times the cash in quantum that was finally delivered for the Marshall Plan in real dollar terms. Uh, we currently have a, an American president who has unique qualities. Um, and uh, seriously unique qualities. Um, but if I could say in polite terms in a public forum such as this, 
having a consistent view on the future articulation of American power, either unilaterally or through the institutions of the United Nations and the broader multilateral system, we are all still scratching our heads as to how that will work. In fact, many colleagues across Asia will say to me as they pass through New York, uh, America is now, under this president, the source of much great strategic uncertainty. That is the United States. Of course, we sit and wait as to what will happen with the unfolding Trump phenomenon. Will it be a single event, or does it signal something deeper changing in the American body politic? And as a consequence, America's preparedness to be the global uh, activist power, acting with and sometimes in support of and sometimes in contradiction of the global rules-based system. So a further change is not just the rise of China, it is the retreat of America. We may still be within a zone where some final diplomatic settlement between the US and the Chinese is possible on the single greatest immediate security threat to us all, which is the North Korean nuclear weapons program. But we are in a state of unprecedented flux, globally, regionally, internally within China itself and therefore we are in new terrain. It's a time, therefore, for this country, Australia, to be exceptionally mindful through its most senior political leadership of these deep and profound changes now unfolding around us. Xi Jinping needs peace. He needs a benign external environment so that he can make China great again. That is his goal. He said it very clearly many times, and he said it again during this mammoth speech he held last week. So the, in the previous speaker's remarks, and again in uh, the minister's remarks this morning, I think the, the topic above all, I think, that has shaped the debate in Australia, and indeed globally, has been China's rise, what it means for individual countries, what it means for our region, indeed what it means for the, the international system. Um, and we've seen, you know, from Paul Keating advocate for a, a kind of accommodation of China um, through to what Mr Bishop's articulated in the foreign policy white paper, a kind of robust defence of the rules-based order in which China can be incorporated. In fact, subtext, it's in its interest to pull its head in and get behind the rules-based order. Um, there's a, almost the full spectrum of ways in which we could or should respond to China. I thought I'd start by asking you, what, what do we think about the kind of world that China's rise is creating and how we as Australians should respond to that. Question to me. You're open for 10, Tony. <laughs> well, perhaps I can just preface it by saying that I spent 10 years as a correspondent in China. Uh, I first went to China in 1979 as correspondent for Fairfax newspapers and, uh, and the Financial Times of London. And then I went back again in 1995 for the second, my second assignment there. Uh, and if I learnt anything about China in, uh, in those two assignments, it is that uh, it would be a huge mistake uh, to underestimate uh, China's achievements. Now that might seem like a fairly banal thing to say in uh, 2018, but back in 1979, there were many uh, of those among my colleagues on the Financial Times, for example, who had uh, misgivings about China's ability uh, to achieve what it set out to achieve at that, at that moment after Deng Xiaoping's rise. Well, of course, it's exceeded all expectations by uh, uh, many factors. Uh, so I, I just preface what I say by pointing out that, that China tends uh, to surprise us all on the upside, and I see no reason why it shouldn't continue to do so. Uh, 
clearly it's a, a, a disruptive process. It's a disruptive process for our own environment and it's one that we have to uh, deal with, I think, in a, uh, uh, to borrow f uh, uh, a phrase from Mr. Mr. Turnbull, we have to be agile and innovative in dealing with it. And I think uh, uh, Foreign Minister Bishop outlined uh, what sounds like a pretty rational approach to me. I, I, I was struck just before by uh, uh, Kevin Rudd's observation that we are living in a, in a situation of unprecedented flux. It is a new, we're in a new terrain, I think he, he said, and I couldn't agree more. That's why we have to be uh, flexible. I think we have to be uh, clear-eyed about how we are going to deal with China's ride, rise. I don't think it requires us to take sides. I think it, it requires us to uh, manage the relationship in a, in, in a way which is uh, in our own interests in our own interests uh, and not be beholden uh, to some of the shibboleths of the past. Uh, I don't agree, uh, uh, by the way, with Hugh White's thesis that we should yield primacy to China. I, I absolutely don't agree with Hugh on, on that point. I think we should try to achieve a sort of uh, a balance in our relationship with China and the region and the United States, but clearly uh, the situation is in a state of flux and it demands of us uh, uh, new approaches and new strategies uh, and a certain vision about how we're going to go about the next period. Uh, and picking up on this idea of new strategies and new vision, I think that Australia's foreign policy is actually sort of trying to, to do new things, diversifying uh, its approach to foreign policy. So rather than focusing just on, you know, the two rising power, or, sorry, one rising power and one potentially declining power in the region, um, focusing on other relationships, like its relationship with India, which I think is particularly important. Um, the Indo-Pacific concept, is, as far as I'm concerned, is really about India um, and, you know, providing a strategic backdrop to things like initiatives like the Quad. Um, but also uh, we see this in, in the ways that, the, um, you know, the, the, uh, Australia rolled out the red carpet for ASEAN a couple of weeks ago with the Australian ASEAN Summit. So I think that there's, um, there is already a, a kind of a, an, an awareness that um, Australia needs to look beyond it, its two big partners, its big economic partner and its big security partner, uh, and foster and develop and nurture those rela relationships with others uh, in the region. But I also just um, commenting on uh, one of the most striking aspects of the, the Paul Keating uh, presentation uh, was the, the marketing of that as being like he's going to say that, uh, that Australia should cut the tag. And that was the big quote around that time. In all of the media, it was about cutting the tag. But he doesn't actually say that. He, he says that we don't need to be so deferential in our performative sort of foreign policy. We don't need to be so obsequious or we don't need to, as he says, get the marriage certificate out every week. And I think that, um, that that's, that's correct. I don't think that Australia needs to do that. But also, I don't think that Australia doesn't have an independent foreign policy. And some of the debates and discussions around Australia having an independent foreign policy seem to suggest that we are just a lackey for the United States. But... I don't see it as being like that. I, I, sorry, sorry, do you want to finish that point? Do you want to comment? Do you, no, just, there's one issue that I think, um, and it's a sort of reasonably profound one in the sense that the, and, and the minister kind of articulated the, the tension in her speech, um, which is there's a view that liberal states have that there's a set of 
international rules and institutions that are kind of neutral mm -hmm. and they're in everyone's interests and they represent a level playing field from which everyone can, can flourish or not based on their own merits. Um, now, you know, you don't have to do a Marxist critique to know that that simply isn't how things operate internationally. Um, and that for, since time immemorial, the great powers have written the rules in their favour and in their interests in to reflect their values. They may think they're universal and they may indeed have universal aspects to them. The big puzzle, well not puzzle, I think the big challenge is that China does not perceive the international system in which it operates as neutral mm -hmm. or as subject to a set of dispassionate impersonal rules that will allow everyone to succeed or fail based on their merits. They perceive it as good Marxists trained in you know, Leninism, Marxism and now Xi Jinping thought uh, to see what are the political undertones of these institutions. And they perceive an international order that is written by and for the Americans and its allies and it serves America and its allies' interests and that, as a corollary of that, the institutions and values cannot allow the PRC to flourish in the way in which Xi Jinping and co. want it to do. So how do you reconcile, how do, you know, how do we reconcile this as, you know, on the one hand, a view that the international order suits everyone and everyone can find satisfaction in it, and on the other hand, a sense that the rising powers simply feel that it isn't, that the system is rigged against them. And I just, I don't feel that the sort of simple recitation that the order suits you, China, you've done really well out of it. Why don't you just get the message and pull in behind Uncle Sam and we'll all get in for the big win, I think is, is naive. And it's going to t get to the point where um, there will be a, a, a contest, I think, over what those institutions and values might be. Um, and I think the difficulty we've got in, the, 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 in Australia in particular, but it's any liberal state, is how do you kind of come to terms with the fact that the order does need to change and that the values need to shift and that those values that are going to be in the international order are probably not ours. Look, just, uh, this is working, I hope. Um, the other thing I, mean, I learned from all my years in China was that China will seek to get away with what it can get away with. Um, if it can, if it believes it can bully, it will bully. Uh, if it believes it can take liberties uh, diplomatically, it will take liberties uh, diplomatically. That's why I think we have to adopt a fairly firm approach to, to the Chinese. Uh, state clearly what our interests are, not be intimidated by them, and use and play to our strengths. And, and just following on from what Beck said, we, we do have more room for manoeuvre, I think, uh, within the alliance arrangement that we have with the United States and our relationships in the region. We've shown that we're good at building institutions. Uh, I think APEC is, 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 is a prime example, uh, which was an initiative of the Hawke-Keating government. Uh, I think the Trans-Pacific Partnership in which we played a, an absolutely played a leading role is an important uh, component of this. Uh, uh, we should try to push forward for a free trade agreement of Asia and the Pacific. I think this is an area where we, uh, where we, uh, we can show leadership and take leadership, and I think uh, demonstrate our, uh, our usefulness in the region. Uh, I think also that we should uh, push, forward, uh, push for a, a security accord, something along the lines of the Helsinki Accords in Europe in the region involving China. I think these are the constructive things that we, that we can do uh, to deal with, with our situation, but I don't think we should run scared or yield primacy. <laughs> Take that, Hugh. 
Um, will not spend more on defence. <laughs> well, if, if China is the big story, um, of course, the other story from a, from a national point of view is the United States mm. and the question of American decline, American retreat. Um, the shadow of Trump is, is long and, and disconcerting for many. Um, but you could make the argument, and I think it's a reasonably strong one, that um, Trump is, you know, is a symptom. He's not the cause of the problem and the sort of deep structural roots of American relative decline globally have been visible for a decade, if not more. And, that, and if you want to really annoy Obama foreign policy people, you tell them that there's a great deal more continuity between Obama foreign policy and Trump foreign policy than they may care to admit. Um, is the US in, in relative decline? Is it in retreat? And what are the implications of this for the US? Uh, sorry, for Australia, because, you know, all of the speakers have again provided this diverse set of, kind of recommendations. Keating saying the US needs to stay, but as an offshore balancer. Rudd saying the US is this huge source of uncertainty, whereas in the past it was the, the kind of rock on which everything was built. Um, and then in the foreign policy white paper in Minister Bishop, you have this pretty optimistic view that the US is here to stay, it'll remain the preeminent power, and it's all roughly going to be okay. Where, where do you see the US going and how, I think, is this likely to affect how Australia relates to the region? Beck? Well, I'm not sure that, um, that we've really grappled with the future of the United States. Um, and because we just don't know, like, is the strategy to ride out the one term, hopefully one term, of Trump? Uh, is it to, you know, to hope that he doesn't get a second term? Or is this a long-term trend, you know, uh, the sort of anti-globalism or anti-globalisation, anti-intellectualism, um, anti-international institutions? Is this something that, you know, maybe Trump uh, will be replaced by someone who's even more, um, you know, uh, wanting, wanting the United States to take an insular and isolated approach. So I think part of um, you know, the, the Trump issue is that it just creates a whole world of uncertainty um, for Australia in, in how it manages its relation um, with the United States because we just we, we don't we don't know. Um, and demographic changes within the United States are also uh, an important factor in trying to, to figure out whether this um, apparent withdrawal from the region is uh, likely to be a sort of a short-term or an aberration or whether it's going to be a long-term thing. But I'll just, um, I, I just would like to make the point that while there are indications of, of United States sort of withdrawing from the region, the TPP is a great example and Australia has continued on uh, with with the TPP with 10 other states despite the United States withdrawing from that. Um, there are other issue areas where we are very much dependent on the, like, you know, or following the lead of the United States. And the big one is um, the, the North Korea summit talks. And, and, and you know, these are uh, talks, uh, South Korea, North Korea are scheduled to be talking on the 27th of April. Uh, in May, there, there isn't, uh, I don't think there's a fixed date yet for, for or any sort of confirmed um, talk yet for, for the United States, uh, for, for, for Trump and Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un to get together and to talk about denuclearisation. Um, but in, in that kind of example, the United States is still a very central player. It has enormous ramifications for the security in the region. And all Australia can do is really sit back and hope that Trump doesn't do anything too stupid, I guess. Yeah, so the hope he changes. 
view. Yeah, yeah that's the very <laughs> Excuse much, me. Uh, Tony. Well, I mean, for a start, um, uh, maybe we should pay attention uh, to what Churchill said about America, that America always does the right thing after it's exhausted all the other possibilities. <laughs> I don't entirely buy the American decline story, and I, again, I hesitate to say this, but spend a decade as correspondent there, off and on, and, and, and wasn't in the least surprised by the rise of Trump, although no one could have predicted that Trump himself would embody what uh, the uh, American uh, disaffection. If, if we recall, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, we were talking about a unipolar world. How quickly the world has changed and how quickly it probably will continue to change. Uh, the point is, we're not in a static environment. Uh, I, and as I said, I don't necessarily buy the American decline story. I think America's going through a particularly difficult uh, and disruptive, if can use that word, stage. We don't know what will follow Trump. Maybe it will refer, revert to the, to, to the norm. But the simple fact is that uh, uh, America's relative decline is matched, of course, by China's rise. Uh, it's, it's not a zero-sum game. So, um, you know, we are in a, a, a very uncertain env environment and uh, we can't possibly predict uh, where we'll be in five or ten years, years' time. Uh, but I would be surprised, given the preponderance of American military might and its interest in the, in the Indo-Pacific or the Pacific region, that uh, we will see American power receding in such a way that it will leave us uh, high and dry or, or vulnerable. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, I think the sense that Trump, you know, Trump has these weird contradictions in his international policy. Perhaps they're not weird contradictions, it's Trump. You know, the whole thing is a set of contra contradictions. So one shouldn't be surprised by them. But on the one hand, there's this kind of nativist, illiberal, trade deals are bad, and this kind of 1972 mercantilist view of trade. Um, and then there's the, you know, the, the, the foreign, or the international presence that's all big stick. You know, we want a 350-ship navy. We're going to spend more on defence than anyone has. We want to invest in, you know, next-generation nuclear arsenal and the whole package. So those two things actually sit kind of uncomfortably, particularly when you have a rhetoric of a free and open Indo-Pacific, which I know when, when um, the, the Trump administration articulated this late last year at the APEC summit uh, in November, Canberra and elsewhere were cock-a-hoop that there was A, a commitment to this idea of the Indo-Pacific and B, free and open as being the kind of descriptor. But the, the problem you've got is if free and open equals mercantilist views of trade, then how, you know, free and open, Seventh Fleet keeping the sea lands open, great, but if it's keeping the arteries of the economy open so that mercantilism can be great again, then we've got, we've got challenges. So I think you're right that militarily and strategically the US isn't going anywhere. Um, but in terms of the sort of economic liberal leadership that it's had, I think there's, there's a great deal of, of, um, of challenge and, and sort of we don't quite know where this is going to land. Uh, could, I, could I just say this uh, very quickly, um, Nick? Uh, and I think we've seen this with the Syrian situation. Uh, uh, our interests and the interests of the West are not served at all by an erosion in the moral authority of the West. And I think one of the concerns must, one must have about the United States these days, given the unpredictable nature of this presidency, is that you know, its moral authority is ebbing. And that's, and that's not desirable, especially in an environment where China is rising. 
Right, I see the shadow of the Chancellor <laughs> looming large across the stage, so I think we're, we're, we are sadly out of time. I think we could go on all morning, but uh, people do have to get on uh, with their lives and works. I'd just like to say a few very brief words of thanks. First of all, thank you, audience, for coming along and for your interest. I think we've had a, a fascinating morning. I'd also like to thank the events team of La Trobe, led by Adam Wren, these things don't just happen, and they do, have done a fantastic job, not just today, but for the three big events we've had uh, uh, a lot in this series. I'd like to thank the panel. We're very fortunate at La Trobe to have such uh, wonderful experts uh, in the field, and that was conveyed very much by their comments and by their questions of the Minister. And I'd like to particularly acknowledge and thank the Ideas and Society program in La Trobe Asia and Nick Bisley and the huge figure behind it all of Robert Mann for the wonderful series of three public lectures. They typify values that La Trobe stands for and that is communication and openness uh, with the community and the public and also the importance of involvement with our region, the role that universities can play the uh, a New Colombo plan is an example of that that was referred to by the Minister, but all the interactions we can have, all the lead that we can demonstrate in our understanding of our place in the region are absolutely uh, vital uh, values that La Trobe uh, has. And I think uh, Nick and uh, Robert uh, are to be congratulated for putting on this uh, wonderful series and attracting such... Um, uh, inspiring speakers. So I'd like you all, and I'd also like to thank Auntie Joy for her wonderful um, in, uh, introduction to country. Welcome to country. Thank you, Auntie Joy. You're a great supporter of La Trobe. So uh, on behalf uh, of La Trobe, thank you all very much, and I'd like you to show your appreciation of the panel. Thank you.